This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Klingon vessel. We are energizing transporter beam. Now. Transporter, stand by. <laughs> My lord, the ship appears to be deserted. How can that be? They're hiding. Yes, sir. But the bridge seems to be run by computer. It is the only thing speaking. Speaking? Let me hear. Nine, eight, seven, six, five. Get out! Three, Get out of there! Get out! One. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and we have another fantastic show for all of you, all of our red shirts and our blue beamers out there in Trek FM land. We have the team aboard and ready for warp speed. So here we are. Greetings, Mr. Ataz. How are you? I am doing great. I uh, just paid a little visit to uh, another timeline uh, and... uh Things are a little different there, but it's uh, also looking really uh, interesting. Oh, by the way, so we had Mrs. Atos on the last show and all of the residual checks, Jeff. Make sure that those go into her bank account, not your (laughs) bank account, because she's an instant star right now with us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we have the chief with us. Chief Ken Tripp, how are you? I am well, Norm. I'm very well. I'm looking forward to this show. I am. we're, We're in our... Our movie mode, and that's that's my sweet spot. So I'm 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 pretty pumped about this episode. That's right. You enjoy talking about the movies. You actually, we had a really good discussion. You and I, uh, when Ataz was stuck in the Atavicron, we had that really awesome discussion about the motion picture versus the Wrath of Khan, and 
Everyone seemed to enjoy that. You especially. Why is it the movies with you so much? You know, you like connecting with those. Because that's how I connected with Star Trek in the first place. So it was the motion picture that got me into it. And then I was looking forward to each movie as they came on and worked my way backwards from the movie. So for me, it was my entry point into Star Trek. And uh, that's that's really the driver. So I've probably seen them all uh, many, many times. I know a lot about them. I don't know if I'm at, an, you know, is there an ATOS meter that I can say that, you know, you know a lot about these movies, but I've read every book there is to read about when they were made and how they were made and from all different perspectives. And so that's why I'm, I'm really hooked on the movies. We should make that a t-shirt. We should make like the ATOS meter, you know, from like, like, like zero to like warp nine. And wherever, wherever your fandom is, you just kind of point to it. Yeah, like zero is a triple and a and a hundred is an ATOS or something, and different things in between. <laughs> like the, uh, the the exponential scale on uh, the the warp warp scale. What was exactly. uh, and, what was and, Fox computer rating there? ATOS. On on eight. which on uh, what's the reference for that? Wasn't it? Uh, I, I don't it was remember like which show, but I do remember he did like have that. a like class nine computer rating or something like that. Yeah, I, I remember something like an, uh, he was like a rated A seven computer expert, and that was in. The Menagerie. I, they've given, I think they give a couple of different. All ratings. right, calm down. We're going to get your questions at the end of the show. So save your brain for that. <laughs> yeah, definitely so you, save your brain for it. Well, as all of our listeners could probably tell in the last few shows that we did, we are ramping up to beyond. We did our trailer parks one and two, and a lot of people really enjoyed those because the movies are kind of like a hot trending topic right now, especially in media and with some of these great events that happened, like the one that Mr. and Mrs. Atas, um, they, where they were invited uh, a few weeks ago. So we are going to cover the movies moving forward as we start ramping up to beyond. And since we did one and two, Chief, we are going to start with... Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and then we're going to move forward into four, five, six, and beyond. Well, <laughs> technically two beyond. So, so Chief, would you like to give us a synopsis of the story and the plot for Search for Spock? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, as we all remember, at the end of Wrath of Khan, the the Enterprise is beaten and battered. Uh, Spock is is dead, and and they've they've jettisoned his body uh, to the planet surface. Savick and David have now transferred to the Grissom, and they're they're off exploring the Genesis planet, and the Enterprise is heading back to Earth. That's exactly where it picks up. And as it's heading back to Earth, there is another scene where there's a supply ship with a, a Klingon Valkris on it who has somehow stolen the data tapes for the Project Genesis, just the, the video that shows what the, what the project is, but not the, the technology piece of it, gives it to Commander Jim Ignatowski Cruz who takes the data, blows up the ship, and then decides that he is going to save the Empire and, and, and has his ship head right to uh, the Genesis planet. So while this has happened, the Enterprise goes into dock. While it's in dock, Dr. McCoy is found in Spock's quarters, and he sounds like Spock, he's acting like Spock, and it's obvious that he is having struggles, and he wants them to, to take him to Mount Salea, which is on Vulcan. So he's placed in the Federation Funny Farm, their term, the Enterprise docks, and it's told that it's going to be com decommissioned. Um, this is this is not good. Uh, Spock's father, uh, Sirak, um, hooks up with Kirk, and uh, they they figure out that Bones has Spock's Katra, or I guess the Vulcan soul, and that he needs to be taken to 
to Vulcan and that they need to bring Spock's body to Vulcan. So Kirk requests the Enterprise for one last mission and is told no. So he decides to steal the ship. He is chased by the Excelsior, which has been sabotaged by Mr. Scott. It can't pursue. It heads to Genesis. Before they arrive, Savick and David head down to the planet. They find a roughly four-year-old Spock on the surface. And as they're requesting to beam up, Cruz blows up the Grissom with his with his uh, bird of prey warship. And then the Enterprise shows up not too far long afterwards. It is able to fire a couple of shots at the bird of prey just before she decloaks. And then everything goes to pot. The automation system that was put in place so just the initial crew members could run it goes down. The ship's a sitting duck. Cruz takes his shot, um, takes out all the major systems, and then it's a standoff. Kirk tries to bluff his way into getting the Klingons to surrender. They do not. Instead, they decide that they are going to kill a hostage while they wait for Kirk to make up his mind, or I guess in a sense force him to make up his mind. They kill David, Kirk's son, in a, in a very dramatic scene. Uh, they explain, uh, Savick explains to Kirk that David is dead. Kirk is just utterly destroyed emotionally, regains his composure, uh, has the Klingons beam over to the ship. They beam out. They had set the self-destruct. The Enterprise blows up. They rescue Savick. They rescue Spock, who is aging at the rate that the planet Genesis is raging because David had used protomatter and that made it unstable. They wind up killing um, the other crew members, the other Klingon crew members that are down there. Cruz beams down. Kirk and Cruz have a battle. Kirk talks his way back up to the ship. They take the bird of prey to Vulcan. They bring McCoy and Spock, who is now the same age he essentially was at the end of the Wrath of Khan. They do the refusion, and Spock is back, although his mind is a little jumbly. And as they say at the end of the movie, the adventure continues. Well done, Chief. Well done. A lot to unpack there. And for a lot of people who that uh, already know the search for Spock, you know the story, you know the plot, a lot of people may have not seen this. And, and I don't find that surprising because everyone is coming to Star Trek from various points in their lives. And some are new fans that have been inspired to see these movies from Star Trek 09 and Into Darkness. And possibly they want to catch up on all these movies before they get to beyond, which is why we're doing this. So... Mr. Ataz, when you saw this, do you remember, can you go that far back and remember, how did this movie make you feel? I know that's more of a Star Trek four, beginning of Star Trek four line, but you know, it's like, a, how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel about what you saw with Search for Spock? When I was younger, it was a little harder for me to get through this. It was slower paced than uh, Star Trek two was uh, in, in some regards, you know, it, uh, it was more, you know, more of a, a almost like a more of a character study of uh, of these different people and how they interacted with each other. And there wasn't as much in the action as there was in other other movies. And for the longest time when I was a kid, I just could never sit through this movie um, for any length of time. I'd either fall asleep somewhere halfway in the middle of the movie or I would just turn it off and try to come back to it later and it was until I was older and later that I was able to really appreciate this movie for what it was and what it was trying to do and I just love this movie now um, it does so much with uh, uh, what they're what they're doing in it and it's 
there's like you said, there's a lot going on in this movie, and I didn't really appreciate it all when I was younger. So the motion picture was 79. The Wrath mm-hmm. of Khan was 82. Mm-hmm. And then this was 84? 84. 84. So I guess for me, like in 84, I would have been 12 years old. Yes, 12 years old. As a 12-year-old watching this movie, it's it's not where it's not where your sensibilities are as a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. You like action adventure yeah. movies. You know, you like think like even though I was younger and I was two years younger when I saw The Wrath of Khan, there was still a lot of action in there. Character exposition type movies aren't exactly where a 12-year-old's mindset is. You know, you want to see like nice big blow-em-up movies, action adventure, heroes doing big explodey things. As you get older and you watch this movie, you really understand how, how smart the connective tissue is between this movie and not just with Wrath of Khan, but with the original series. Because now you're dealing a lot with Vulcan mysticism and uh, the Vulcan culture. And you're really dealing a lot with how smart that they tried to wrap up or at least continue or give the the, the doorway of continuing what happened with Spock with the mind meld and the Katra. Because now, again, you're going into Vulcan mysticism. And you're also dealing a lot with grief. You know, Kirk, Kirk at the end of Wrath of Khan, a lot of people kind of, uh, they fault the end scene where he's a little bit more like, I feel young, you know, like, and everything is okay because at the very beginning of search for Spock, you know, he's in the throes of uh, the aftermath of his grief. You know, he's not exactly sure what to do. His, his crew has been beaten up. His ship's been beaten up. His best friend has been killed. His other best friend in McCoy, he's kind of like off the rails. Everything's kind of unsettled. You don't like that in your heroes, especially when you're younger. You're like, what's going on? How come my heroes aren't winning the day and, and saving the damsel in distress and righting all the wrongs and, and defeating evil? I don't understand this. But again, when you get older, you understand that this is now a study of friendship, loyalty, sacrifice, determination, throwing caution to the wind. Because when I saw, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, my, my emotions are a little bit jumbled here. But when I saw the scene where Kirk's like, you know, the word is, you know, the word is captain. Well, the word is no. I am therefore going anyway. That takes me all the way back to a mock time when he is saying to Bones, he saved my life a dozen times over. Isn't that worth a career? That right there is how smart um, the storytelling is in this because that's who these characters are. That's how they evolved. So the one thing that I love about this movie more than anything else is that how every single person in the crew risked everything for one person. They risked, right, they risked it all because that's how they would have done it for Chekhov. They wouldn't have done it for Scotty, Uhura, everyone their, their friendship and their loyalty and the love for each other, they, they all were hanging in the balance. And in the end, it just kind of all came together marvelously. But they, they, they put everything on the line. And that's something about the original series crew that I always loved, is that no one person was bigger than another. They all went after it together. And at the end, and as I grow older, that's just what I get. So it's, it's interesting with fandom how you see things like in 10 year chunks, you know, how do you respond to that when you're 10 years younger? How do you respond to that when you're 10 years older from now? So I always find it fascinating. And I think the search for Spock gives you a lot to chew on, but let's talk a little bit more about some of the finer points here. Let's talk about the chief. You now you wrote here, like Nedard Nimoy makes his directorial debut, directorial debut. Because we're saying that this movie has a lot to chew on. How did you feel about the entire narrative structure of the movie? Did this movie flow from that standpoint? 
And again, like I said, I'm not talking about like, you know, um, did it pull you this way? Did it pull you this way emotionally? Did you feel like as a director that he did a good job? I do. I, I know that anytime there's a first time director, there's going to probably be a couple of technical things. They say, eh, I don't know if that really worked. But as far as the flow of the film, I thought the pacing was okay. I was 17 years old in 84 as a senior in high school when I saw it. And it had the right balance, I thought. So as he as he constructed it, you know, it wasn't like one of the newer movies where the pacing is just off the charts. It was methodical in its approach, but it gave you a good balance. I remember back in those days, I really wanted to see the ships. We got, you know, a lot of new things in Star Trek Three, And I think that he balanced it very, very well with the right amount of action at the right time. You know, I when Jeff was telling me that he was falling asleep when he was younger. You know, my mind, I'm going, oh, blasphemy. But I can understand that <laughs> to a degree because there is a lot of dialogue in this mm-hmm. movie. But it, it, and I was I was seven at the time, so I mean that's another factor. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's a big factor, and I can understand that. I, I'm just being kind of a wise guy, but I do get it. For me, it was it was a very somber movie. It had uh, a couple of pluses and minus here, a couple of things where you, you you were able to laugh out loud. I think it had the right sprinkle, but you knew it was going to be a dark movie, and I say dark because there was a lot of drama in this, and I think. Leonard Nimoy, for the budget that he had, he did well. You know, he had a set in Genesis. It reminded you very much of a TV episode, more than it did a motion picture, I have to admit, when it came to those scenes. But ILM special effects were phenomenal. I watched it again today, and the effects really do hold up. They hold up very, very well. So I think he he did a very good job putting this, this whole thing together, and obviously it gave him a ticket. Not only for Star Trek Four, but Three Men and a Baby and The Good Mother. He wound up being a very, very talented director and a very well-liked director. And I think that he did a very nice job with this. I think one of the cool things that they actually did really well in this movie, and I wanted to go back to you, Ken, about this. They had a really, um, really interesting approach to all the different red herrings when it came to Spock. Because when the USS Grissom was doing its bio sweep of the planet, you saw that there was um, an indicator saying like life form, life form, life form, life form. And you're like, well, obviously they have to bring back Spock, right? Because right. what's what's the what's the original series crew without Spock? What is Kirk and McCoy without Spock? This doesn't make any sense. So how did you feel about when you saw them reveal all those different pathways to, oh, no, that's not him. Oh, the the, tor- the torpedo chamber is open. Oh, his ritual cloak is there. Because that's that goes now into kind of like this Anglo-Christian philosophy you know he basically the the stone was rolled back and the burial cloth is left behind (laughs) i guess i didn't quite see it that way but i see where you're going and you could see it that way you know i i get the the genesis effect regenerating his cells i'm not really sure what happened in that in that torpedo to go from a a dead adult body to i guess an infant and then, and then grow rapidly. I could see being too small for that huge robe, but (laughs) I, uh, I, I thought it was, it was pretty neat. I I do know that the first time I saw it and they showed life form, life form, life form. And then when they went down there and they saw all these microbes that had grown significantly, I was like, Hmm, okay, what's exactly happening here? How is this going to work? I was really expecting to see a Leonard Nimoy, not a little boy, uh, but it, it it made sense, you know, and I think they, they did it well. I, I give Harv Bennett a, a lot of credit for working this thing through because this really was just a bridge movie. 
But this bridge movie could have been done really half-assed, and they didn't do it that way. They came up with a pretty clever plot line to bring him back, I thought, and it it really sets the rest of the series running again. But, boy, it's heavy drama, very heavy drama. Okay, the, that's a good point that you brought up, and, and Atos, I'm going to pick your brain about this because when this came out in 84, did, did it, are there any records of like Harv Bennett saying or any of the production staff saying that we are going to do a trilogy of films. We label it as a trilogy of films now because in hindsight, two, three, and four are marketed with DVDs and Blu-rays and with a special sticker on it. I remember when um, 2009 came out, they actually packaged two, three, and four in just a three disc set with a sticker on it that said the adventures of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. But there were so many, there was the motion picture, there was five, there was six, and and um, for for a moment there, there was Kirk and at least Scotty and, and Chekhov in Generations. But two, three, and four now, in retrospect, are the three films, the trilogy of Star Trek. But that wasn't back then. So do you think that they approached this film that way, Ataz? In a, we're going to bridge this, or this is just going to be a standalone film. We're going to do the best we can. I don't think that they were going for a trilogy. I think they were just... Uh going from the angle of, well, we've said that we're going to bring Spock back and we got to find a way to do it that makes sense and that is clever and it's a good story. And it just happened to work out that it kind of bridged things between that and, you know, from Star Trek to this film and then what they do later in Star Trek four, two years later, you know, they didn't even have that in mind at all when they made this film. They knew they were probably going to do a fourth film, but they didn't know for sure what it was or what it was going to be about. Yeah, I think that the one thing that I always came away with at the end of almost every Star Trek movie is that, are we going to get another one? Because it never really felt like we left on solid footing, obviously in two, definitely in three, because Spock is there. But like you said, Ken, in your synopsis, that he wasn't all there. It's as if he was getting rewired and like learning at the time. So, And we all know what Spock's brain was like. I mean, he was the human calculator. He was the, the Vulcan-trained logic machine. And I always thought that they were going to almost go all the way back to what happened with Uhura in the Changeling when she got reprogrammed because that felt a little like, okay, so you're going to teach, you're going to reteach this person how to not only walk, talk, function as a normal human being, but relearn all her linguistics that she's learned over the course of her career. How does that work? That's the way I felt with Spock at the end of Star Trek three. But there's another really interesting component that happened in, in this film, and that's the Klingons. And I loved don't don't think that I didn't um, catch your taxi reference when you referen- when you referenced Krug earlier on, because okay, Christopher yeah. Lloyd. Yeah. You know, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, how did you feel about seeing Christopher Lloyd in the role of the Klingon? We haven't seen the Klingons in this kind of earnest ever. We saw the recreation of the bumpy forehead Klingons for a brief moment in the motion picture. But now you're seeing really fully developed characters in Star Trek, the fully developed Klingons. How did you feel about that? Well, for me, it was fine for the first two thirds of the movie because it was it was exciting to see the Klingons come back. And I thought Christopher Lloyd did a, a really good job right up until the point when he's interrogating the people on the planet. Now, at that time, I was a taxi fan. And I remember sitting with a bunch of people in the movie theater. And he does that, I've come a long way for the power of Genesis. 
and everybody started <laughs> laughing and you couldn't help it. You were just like, it's Reverend Jim. And you knew yeah. it was, you knew it was him before the movie started, but it was his, it was that exact, you know, tr- uh, tremor in his voice and the way he was saying it. And it just took everybody out of the movie. So, you know, if you, if you were a lot younger, like Jeff's age and you, you hadn't watched Taxi or your family wasn't a big fan of the show, it, it, it wouldn't have mattered. He, he, he played it well. But that that killed it, and and it I could never watch, and I have not been able to watch the movie, and separate myself from that character. It was, it was the wrong person for that role. I mean, when you think about it, there was uh, quite a few different actors that have done done Klingons, and I know that one of them was uh, from Night Court. Uh, John Larroquette was Lariquette. part of his crew. Yeah, yeah. And he, <laughs> maybe, Maltz, right? Maybe if he had gotten those lines, it it would have been a lot better because he had that deep, ominous voice. But through the battle scenes, you know, this is your opponent speaking, the way he handled it, he was, he was brilliant. He just lost me on that scene. And then you, there was Valkyris at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So now we finally saw, she was a Klingon female, yeah? Yep. And it is funny. Let's do a little bit of speculation game here. Okay. Okay. How do you think that she got the Genesis tapes? Many and Boffins she- died. Wait. Oh, wait. <laughs> Many Boffins. That's great. That's great. Because that's like all of a sudden, you know, at the end of two, you th- okay, so the um, the only time that we saw it was through retinal scan records on the Enterprise was a secret communique from Starfleet. And then she has them. Well, if you remember, and I did watch it today, and this is where this whole funky thing about Treconomics comes into place because she quote unquote purchased them and they were waiting for their reward, their payoff. Right. So is there money? Isn't there money? How things work or, or whatnot. So when you ask how, how she got them, she got them the way. And remember in 1984, there were all kinds of spy scandals going on. John Walker, all kinds of stuff was going on in that era. People were getting caught left and right. Jonathan, Jonathan Pollard, all for the love of money. Not for love of country, not for love of the Federation. So somehow, some way, financial was the way. And it's, you know, back then you don't even think about it in 1984 because we haven't really talked about Treconomics. But, you know, there was references in the original series about, you know, you're you're fired, you're you're not getting paid, or you've earned your pay and all that other stuff. So you, you think that there is some kind of... Of, of monetary way of running the Federation back then. And then, obviously, in Star Trek Four, oh, they still use money. That's confusing. And TNG, God only knows how it works. But in this movie, she paid for it somehow, some way. You know, I thought that they actually did a really good economical job of describing how Krug was, just in his, his mentality, because he's very draconian. Mm-hmm. I love the line where he asked her, so you saw this? And she's like, yes. He goes, unfortunate. I go, oh. I was like, well, okay. I see how this guy is. And she didn't hesitate, because, did she? No, think, she understood. Think, she, think of it she from her point him. of view, too. She, she rogered right up. She could have said, nope. But she, no. I'm, I saw it and I know what's next because this is my duty. Well, a lot of, I mean, along with uh, all this darkness and heaviness, there were really some nice points of levity. And, and I think that while they introduced a really great new ship with the Excelsior class, and who was Sty- who played Styles with it? James Sicking. That's right. Who plays who played yeah. Styles? Yeah, and he was from Hill Street Blues, a right. uh, big actor at the time. 
there was I almost felt like the Excelsior was put in there almost for a comedy bit because it provided a lot of comedy. And let's talk about that because, A, we saw a new ship. Uh, we, we were able to see the Reliance, the Miranda class in two. And then we saw the Excelsior class in three. But why do you think that it was necessary for them to show the Excelsior class at this stage of the game in a movie? What do you think that is, Mr. Atos? Well, I know I've read elsewhere that uh, the plan was that in the next movie, after they blew up the Enterprise, they were going to come back and get the Excelsior as their new ship. But then that the um, I know that there was some blowback from the fans when that got out. And so at the end of four, you know, you see them getting an Enterprise A, but they've got the little tease of them getting the Excelsior. Um, I, I think um, that was just kind of a, a way of acknowledging that, yeah, we were originally going to do that, but we decided not to when you guys said that uh, you didn't like that idea. Um, but from what I understand that they were originally, they were planning to have Kirk and company get command of the uh, the Excelsior. And they even did that in the comic books that tied in with this. And they were done in coordination with uh, Harv Bennett and the uh, the others that were doing the films at this time. Much like the current Star Trek comics are coordinated with the production team from uh, the current films. And they had this whole storyline where after Star Trek 3, Kirk gets command of the Excelsior. Spock is totally back to normal and gets command of another ship, a science vessel. And they have the mirror universe crossover and ends with him back in, you know, his his mind is scrambled again. And it sets things back up so that they're able to jump back into Star Trek four. You know, I'm actually glad that you brought that up, because if you haven't read that part, that storyline is actually really fascinating how they handled Spock, because this wasn't um, they wrote that that comic book storyline before they resolved, like how the whole Katra thing worked. So mm-hmm. basically there was a whole tear in the rift of time space and the, the fabric of that continuum. The mirror universe came invaded and Spock and Spock, Spock and mirror Spock kind of mind melded with each other. And then good Spock won and actually took the mind of mirror universe Spock. And that's how he got his Katra back. Isn't that right? Something like that. It, it was a little confusing. Yeah. But this was before like how uh, anything got resolved before three. So mm-hmm. it was weird how they were almost working independently of each other, the comic series and the movie series. But aside from the Excelsior, which I loved and it provided some great comic relief, especially with Scotty, because Scotty hated working on it and basically sabotaged it. So he's already yeah. started down his criminal path. He loved but, the Enterprise. Oh, he loved the Enterprise. Totally. He, I mean, this is Scotty. We know we're talking about. And we're going to get to that moment in a bit, because I know a lot of listeners are waiting for us to talk about that particular moment, which everyone saw in the trailer before it even happened in the movie. So we're not sore about that at all, especially the chief. No. But we also saw something, Jeff, that you talked about before, and that why didn't we see a D7 class battlecruiser? For the Klingons, why did we get a Bird of Prey? Because Bird of Prey is, as we know, as the nomenclature goes, is a Romulan designation, not a Mm -hmm. Klingon designation. So let's talk a little bit about that, because there's an interesting history about why that happened. Yeah, um, from what I've uh, read and what I understand, originally in early drafts of the script, it was going to be the Romulans. And then they decided to make it the Klingons and the Klingons had a stolen Romulan ship. And then that stuff got dropped. And then it was just a Klingon ship. And other stuff that's come out since has said, oh, yeah, that's always been a Klingon ship. And I guess that's what we have. And we go with that now. (laughs) I mean, I liked it. It's a cool design. Yeah, it's a great design. 
And uh, it's um, obviously it sets up for like future movies. But Chief, I mean, what do you think about all these interesting ships that they introduced in, in three? Do you think it was just a little too much? Do you think it was right on the money? I mean, you always have to kind of like push like the retail market forward. So not only are we getting like the battle scarred enterprise and the toy market, but now we're getting like the Excelsior, we're getting the bird of prey, a lot of stuff happening in this movie. And the Grissom, well, let's not, let's not forget the Oberth class. Right. So I thought that was really cool. And we got to see um, a really interesting crew there and the new captain that was a uh, meant. No, not Mendez. Well, who's the captain of the Grissom? Esteban. Esteban. That's it. So a lot of ships happening in this movie. Mm-hmm. JT Esteban. I uh, thought that that was probably the biggest selling point of Star Trek Three was that it's not a it's it's not a talked about movie very often, right? You don't you don't talk a lot about it in terms of when you're at conventions or when people list it as the top movies or whatever. It's considered an okay movie, but what it did was introduce a ton of what was going to be the future Star Trek culture. In terms of ships, in terms of the space talk, in terms of even the cargo ship that was manipulated six ways to Sunday during the next generation for different kinds of ships, over and over and over, the stuff that they created in Star Trek Three wound up permeating through the rest of the series and the rest of the movies, all of the movies. You know, I mean, it was a bird of prey that blew that... up the D, for God's <laughs> sakes. It was crazy how much came out of this movie. And so I give them a lot of – it was very creative – no movie has since introduced really that many things that became mainstays. And I know as things got easier in TNG when they're fighting the Borg and stuff and in First Contact, they had a whole bunch of ships and so forth. But really, I mean, they all kind of stem from two and three. Those were the movies that, that, that really created so many of the, of the vessels, the space docks, everything, especially that bird of prey. That is... The most popular ship, I think, in Star Trek, other than the Enterprise, that's probably the one you see the most. Yeah, no, I agree. It's there's. I'm sorry, Etaz, you were going to say something. I was just going to say um, all the things that carried over, and we saw more of later on. I wish we'd seen more Federation security because we had that one security agent that came up to McCoy at the bar when he was trying to get transport, and he's like, flashes his badge and he says, Federation security. You know, <laughs> he's I don't trying think- to do the next pinch on him. Yeah. So, I mean, I but- wish we'd seen more of those guys. I mean, basically, it's the Federation's FBI or CIA. Right. There were, you're right. There were a lot of kind of interesting civilian aspects to this because they were in their downtime. You know, they weren't on assignment. They were waiting to see, you know, what was going to happen with the future of the Enterprise, if any, the future of the the mission to go back and restudy the Genesis planet, if any, because now it was Savix and David's responsibility. And let's let's talk about let's pivot a little bit and let's talk about Savic because Kirstie Alley didn't come back for the role, the role that she made probably most famous. I think Robin Curtis did a really good job in in her interpretation of that role, but where did the what what happened? Let's talk about what happened there, because I was a little disappointed not seeing Kirstie Alley again, because she was so good at Savic. So what happened? Money. She just wanted more money than they could afford to pay her. And so mm-hmm. they said, well, the character is more important than the actress, and they, they brought in Robin Curtis. And it's, it's really that simple. When you have such a huge cast like you do in Star Trek, you have the main seven, then you have to bring in all the supporting actors and actresses. You only have so much money that you can spend. And that was really the issue with her. So she, Kirstie Alley did a great, great job in, in Star Trek Two, And I thought Robin Curtis, I mean, how do you follow that up when you're somebody completely different? 
You know, I mean, there's it's 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 not an easy thing to do. However, I thought Robin Curtis played a really strong Vulcan. I, I thought she she had it down. And uh, it, it's hard because Kirstie Alley obviously went on to become a superstar. And Robin Curtis is pretty much known for these few shows, uh, the Star Trek uh, three and four. And and that's that's it. I'm sure she's done other things, but I couldn't name them. So she was in a two-parter on Next Generation. Okay. Yeah, she became more of a of, of a bit part character. Yeah, I'm just actor. saying, Chris Daly yeah. was became you know world famous and and a yeah. huge star. And they did attempt to get her back for six, and I think it was more scheduling than anything else. So they went in another direction. And the other part was that Roddenberry didn't want Savick to be a traitor, even though he didn't create the character. So it was a little bit of ir- irony there. But see, I told you, Atos, I know about these movies. <laughs> Come on, no, buddy. you're doing a great Come job, on, Chief. You're, you're 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 holding up your end of the bargain. So uh, one th- one thing that I found interesting though is that they just were really quick to dismiss um, Genesis, saying it's a failure, but it wasn't even used the way that it was supposed to be used. And uh, it's just kind of interesting that it went away, even though you know it's supposed to have been used on the surface of a planet, not to create a planet from nothing. Um, and I, I just uh, I kind of wish they had done a little more follow-up on that. I mean, more on the controversy that they mentioned and the debates that they had over it? Because obviously it became a, as they said themselves, a galactic controversy. This thing is huge. Should we be playing God or not? So we assume that the rule is, no, we won't Well, we play know God. that they're talking about it, but I just kind of wish that uh, we had seen a little bit more of that. Yeah. I see what, I see what you're getting at, because yeah. the proto-matter that David used to complete his equation when they were on regular one or the space lab at regular one that was used when they were simulating the, the manipulation of a planet from a molecular level mm-hmm. from actual matter, not a nebula mm-hmm. because that's what happened. The Mutara nebula was morphed. That was just gaseous anomaly as opposed to an actual solid rock formation, like a dead planet. So you're right. I, I that's a really good point. You know, Genesis really wasn't a failure because it wasn't properly tested uh, de facto t- against uh, its protocols at regular. So, but that, you know, that's, that's, it's a, that's a really good debate for another time. But the one thing I wanted to get to were probably the two most significant events um, that happened in, in the search for Spock. And that was David's death and the death of the Enterprise. And I can't say that with more intent because that was the death of a character, in my opinion, uh, and in many uh, fans' opinion, I know it's the Chief's opinion, when I saw that happen in the trailer, which I'm, I, I wish I saw it more in the movie first than the trailer, that gutted me to no end. That's the, that's our, think about it this way. We're talking about the ship that we saw from 1966 to 1984 with the, with the assumption that it's the same ship that, hap, that, that just um, was refit in 1979. It's the same ship. The same bones, if you will, and not not bones, bones, but the same structure, you know, the same essence, the lifeblood that carried those people for five years, went back to Starfleet. They retooled it up to be this new Constitution class ship, and now it's going off in these missions. And this is the ship that Kirk has fought and bled and nearly died for, you know, in the naked times. Like, now I know why they call her she. You know, these these are the moments that you remember. And he had to make that call. Because he had no other choice. This was his Kobayashi Maru in real time. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that because 
What happened in those moments when he lost control of the ship, when Krug fired on him, to when he had to just basically do what they did from... I believe that simulation was from uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, you know, the um, you know destruction sequence. And this was for real. He knew what was going to happen. He had no choice. This is his Kobayashi Maru. Do you guys agree or disagree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is uh, him having to make just an impossible choice and choosing to sacrifice one thing that meant the world to him to save another thing that meant the world to him. So let's 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 hit David a little bit first, and then we'll get to the Enterprise yeah. because it, that's that's kind of the order of events. And uh, mm-hmm. fair point. I I okay. think that it was too much, too much drama, in my opinion. Uh, I, I understand the impact, and there has to be a driver for Kirk to surrender his ship. I I I think you could argue that they killed the wrong character because this gave us an opportunity to see Kirk in a new light as. As a person who's trying to become a father, who's, you know, uh, it's it's just a different world. And it was just so dismissed because I thought it was a very powerful moment in Star Trek II when he recognizes his son in terms of who he really is. And his son recognizes that his dad isn't who he thought he was at all. And they come together. Now, you could say, okay, that that adds to the drama. That makes it even more sad. I think it was it was a poor choice. I think sometimes... When you go for that that extra push, you can push it too far, and that that's what happened there. It was a great scene when Kirk fell back and he 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 couldn't sit in his chair, and he Beautiful turns scene. around for twenty five seconds. But from the rest of that point, even at the end of the movie, and they said at what cost? They said what ship first, and then your son. This is what what Sarek said to. And he said, well, the cost would have been my soul. My soul. And it didn't reconcile with me, not nearly enough. Not as a dad. Um, it makes no sense. It was, it, was, it was too dismissive. And I think it was way too shallow of Kirk. Now, that's how Harv Bennett wrote it. I get it. But to me, that, that um, if, if you're going to kill his son, uh, it, it has to mean more than what they made it out to be. And I know it pays a more of a pivotal role. Pivotal, pivotal role in Star Trek VI because he can't forgive them for the death of his son, but it's never brought up in five. It becomes a convenient plot point, but they could have really developed him more and had him die maybe in in six or in five or something along those lines rather than in three when you're just getting to know the character. And I really liked that character. I really did. And uh, I thought it was too much. The Enterprise blowing up, you know, it was it was beat to hell. I hated to see it go. Uh, you know, you blow up a ship to kill seven Klingons. I guess so. When you have no choice, he made the right choice. Um, but it it just pains me to watch. And and even watching the movie extras when the technicians for ILM, because I was watching the whole thing today, were talking about, yeah, we got to blow up the Enterprise. It was so much fun. I wanted to punch him in the face. I really did. I just was like, what do you mean it was fun? You know, he meant from a pyrotechnic point of view or whatever. Maybe the, yeah. maybe the model was a pain in the ass, whatever it was. But I was like, man, you know, these these are definitely don't, they, these guys just don't have that same kind of reverence I, I have for for my ship. But at any rate, that's that's my diatribe. Yeah, you know, like I said, at 12 years old, seeing something that you've fallen in love with so much, and, and you you almost kind of come to count on it in a way when you see these movies. 
Um, later on, when you see movies like uh, or TV shows like Firefly and they have the ship, the Millennium Falcon, and they have the ship. These moments that that transcend a ship from ship to character and you understand that there is actual emotion in, uh, attached to a completely inanimate object. That really means something because you as a fan understand the ship almost just as well as you understand any character. Probably even more so sometimes, you know, you can you can only read so much about a bio, but you can like you can read manual after schematic after plan after diagram, because that's the kind of techie stuff that science fiction fans like us love. So when I saw the Enterprise destroyed in the space scene, it was interesting, but even more so when it was plummeting into orbit and burning up in the atmosphere. And then, you know, when when Kirk said, you know, my God, Bones, what have I done? And then Bones, as he understands Kirk, and he was like, you know, what you've always done, turn death into a fighting chance to live. I thought that was probably one of the most beautiful moments in the movie. It was. Because you, you're stepping on all these very sacred tropes of Star Trek. It's, it's the captain, the loss of his command, and that screams all the way back to when Decker lost his ship against the Doomsday Machine, against the Planet Killer. How, what does that do to a captain? What does that do to his psyche? And like he said, if... Um, if he didn't make that choice when he was confessing to Seth, it's like, you know, the, uh, it would have been my soul if I didn't attempt this. Mm-hmm. I have to do it. So can, can you imagine, and you try to put yourself on the shoes now, I know Roddenberry probably gets too much credit. He, he created the show, there's no doubt. And I know there's aspects of the show that, that got, the credit needs to be peanut butter spread up, you know, with Gene Alcoon and a lot of other people. So I'll qualify it a little bit. But that was his ship, that was his creation. And... Because of the motion picture and all the infighting, and, and he made that set miserable, he paid a price. He became executive consultant. And you have to sit in the background and watch these new people play with your your creation, your toys, right? For and, and I'm not saying they did it for the wrong reasons, but they've killed Spock. They've killed the Enterprise. You know, David, I know, wasn't his creation. But you're watching all this happen, and it must have been awful. To have to not have a say in that, you know, I, I understand oh, it totally. moves the plot. It did everything right, you know. My my, I, I'm able to separate myself from the fact that I don't like seeing the Enterprise blown up. To saying in that movie, it made sense. It just became more of a trope in later movies, but uh, and they did it well and they did it with reverence and all that other stuff. But can you imagine being Gene Roddenberry watching all this happen from the sidelines, going, "I don't want this to happen," and the studio just exceptionally, you know, flipping the bird to the great bird, and that's what they did. Well, see, I'm going to disagree with that. In effect, I don't think that they actually handled the death of other enterprises with reference because, and I'm going to, no, no, I'm I sorry. They did it in this movie, but oh. not in the others. It became a trope. Oh, okay. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Be, yeah. Because in this movie, in this, and only this movie so far that I've seen, has the enterprise been handled to the point where like real tears were brought out of me. Right. And Jeff, you were saying this about beyond when you saw mm-hmm. a certain scene and I don't want to spoil it too much. But you said that they handled it well. I hope they do, because the one thing that I didn't get from other films, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw any other films under the bus, I never felt that any further destruction of any other enterprise meant anything to anybody, nope. especially the crew and especially the captain. So if anyone out there from those other series want to debate that point with me, please feel free to send me an email because I will stand my ground on that. I felt that the destruction of the enterprise in this movie was just as significant as the death of Spock in two. It was. I really do. It was. I agree. Mm-hmm. And I, I, 
I, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I, I, in my opinion on uh, what I saw from Beyond, I think it's even better than how it was handled in three. Well, good. that's a good thing. That's mm-hmm. that's something to look forward to, and hopefully they won't show that in a preview too much. Not well, too much I mean, they probably already have. They've, they've already shown bit. like two thirds of it in the preview, <laughs> but not the emotional intent. No, not so. the emotional intent. The emotional intent from that scene. I mean, it like I said, it nearly had me in tears. Good. I can't wait to see it. Now, don't tell me anything yeah, more. Exactly. So we've, uh, you know, we've talked about that, you know, we've talked about the destruction of the Enterprise, but I, one of the things I want to talk about um, before we wrap this up is tw- the end of the movie, because at the end of the movie, we are dealing heavily now with the Vulcan culture, the the ability to be able to transmit, you know, the, the Katra from, you know, McCoy's brain to Spock's brain or soul from McCoy's body to Spock's body. What did that strike in you? What did that bring about in you? And just in terms of an emotional response, did you feel like this was a bookend to a mock time, something around that line. Yeah. All right. I, what struck me most about that was it just seemed like a, a well, pardon the pun, but it, it seemed a logical follow-up to uh, all everything that we had uh, been established so far about the Vulcans telepathic abilities. And we've seen, you know, Spock can, transmit his thoughts to another person. He can make another person do something just with his mind. Um, it stands to reason that if he can transmit his thoughts, then he can like copy his thoughts over. And it, it just seemed a very natural progression of what we know about Vulcan mental abilities. And if you can do that, then what's to say that you can't get another body that has no mind and transfer it out of this other body and back into the, the original, um, or, you know, into the new body. Um, you know, I mean, effectively you could have immortal Vulcans just by cloning new bodies or something and transferring their brains over. (laughs) I mean, uh, appropriately I'm, I'm wearing my Spock's brain (laughs) t-shirt, but, uh, um, and also, you know, like like you were saying with Amok Time, it, it really establishes a lot more about uh, Vulcan culture. You know, we've got the matron, Vulcan matron uh, presiding over this ceremony to restore Voc- Spock's mind into his body. And that ties in with Amok Time with the Vulcan matron overseeing the mating rituals and the, the marriage ritual. And it you have all these other people in the background in the ceremonial attire ceremonial attire. And again, it echoes that. And it, it just seemed like a very natural uh, progression and continuation of that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that uh, it was, it was pretty cool. And I think it, it feeds right into the next movie really, really well. It gives us kind of, a, you know, I don't know about you guys. I mean, the refusion. Okay. It was, it was a bit of a gimmick, you know, the, the downloading so much. For, and that was really the difference between O'Hara and Nomad. O'Hara's learning everything from scratch. Spock is just having essentially his own anagrams and data reloaded into him. And it's just, are we pulling enough of it? And is it is it able to, to um, go deeper in and, and pull all his memory and all his synapses from from before back into back into the body again. So I say that that's probably the biggest difference between the two. But it was... It well, this was, is why you always make an external backup. That's, that's right. That's good. <laughs> that's a good point. I think that the... Um, 
like I said, it was it was cleverly done. It does it does open yourself. You know, you, you brought up a lot of interesting points. I kind of just kind of dropped it and said, okay, you know, it hasn't been done, and it has only been done in legend, uh, and in not since ancient times. So it's it's definitely isn't a practice that they've done often because where else could this occur, right? I mean, obviously, when the body dies, the coal, the the soul, the coal, the soul. I guess they claim this. They say goodbye to it, or it's it's put in a rock. I don't know exactly where the soul goes, but I guess it's more of a traditional type thing than anything else, and that's that's kind of where where it all occurs. But it was it was it it was kind of a cool scene. I love seeing the uh, the motion picture costumes back and and all that stuff brought brought, brought back into it. I like that they had diversity in Vulcan. That was the first time, right? We saw different different faces on Vulcans from different regions of the of the planet. So, you know, I think Nimoy and, and Bennett came up with a, a pretty cool device. I, I I wouldn't know how else they could have pulled it off, and um, they, they found a way. I think one of the neat things that, that uh, just watching it over and over and over again, and because I love watching Mark Leonard act, was how non-Vulcan he was about his plea to Kirk when he said, why didn't you take him back to Mount Salea? It was, you could feel him more as a father first and a Vulcan diplomat second, at least in this stage. And he wasn't the, the stoic Vulcan. You know, I thought that was a really nice change. And it almost kind of started to tie into the older Sarek, the Sarek that we saw in The Next Generation, you know, that Sarek that's starting to lose a little bit of a grip of his logical control and the emotions started to come over him. Because the one thing that I always felt, and I think Ben Cross did a really good job of this in, in 2009, was that even though that, you know, Vulcans are supposed to be logical creatures, they're still beings. They, they started with emotion first, and then the process of Kulinar has driven that emotional balance out of them. And that's one thing that I think Julian Blaylock was always faulted for in Enterprise was playing a, a Vulcan too emotional versus, say, like all the Vulcans that you saw that was part of the Vulcan high command, you know, Velas and his people. But I always felt that Vulcans in and of themselves are actually emotional. It's just that they are really good at controlling it and knowing when they need to assert that emotional content. And in this case, for Sarek, it's because his his son has died and he's like, why didn't you bring his soul, his eternal soul back to Vulcan? He would have made that plea. So that's just an observation that I thought was really interesting. But I wanted to pose this question to you before we get too long and, and we have a little bit more show to go. I thought that was interesting that Spock kind of, quote unquote, in McCoy's estimation, sought his revenge on him by planting his Katra into McCoy. But McCoy wasn't the only one that was outside of the the the, uh, the warp reaction chamber. At that time, Scotty was also. So I thought it would have been interesting just from a storytelling standpoint if he actually mind melded with Mr. Scott. What do you guys think? Have you guys ever thought about that? I've never thought about that. Nope. Would it have been interesting? Sure. But uh, I think it's it's the perfect setup because the two are always at odds. It would have been a little bit more benign with Scotty. But that, that's that's interesting thought process there, Norm. How about you, Mr. Ata? Do you ever think about that when you saw that? Like why? Obviously, we know why McCoy, because of their history. But just from like, a, and you're you're a fanfic writer, so mm-hmm. I don't know if there has been any speculation on, well, if Bones wasn't ready for it, or if Spock was like, right before he stepped into the chamber, he went for Scotty instead. 
I was, I had always figured that, well, maybe he went for McCoy because McCoy just said that uh, Scotty had passed out from radiation uh, exposure. So maybe he's thinking, well, McCoy is perfectly healthy and there's less risk that something's going to happen to Scotty after he melds with him. That's a fair point. It's just one of those what ifs. I think it would be a, a pretty cool kind of what if scenario for a comic book because rarely, if ever, do you get to see any of the other actors like Jimmy Doohan when he was alive or you know, Nichelle or, or George or, or um, Walter have these great moments. I mean, you saw what they were able to do in Star Trek four when you actually let them cut loose a little bit and have some fun. So I thought it would have been, been kind of interesting just to kind of like get out of the dynamic of the, of the Trinity and just see what happened. It's just, I don't know for the fans, I'd love to hear, you know, if, if you ever thought about that, if, there was just an, an opportunity in your own fanfic to think about uh, where Spock could have gone with with his mind meld, because that was that was um, written more towards as an addendum, you know, to what happened in Star Trek Two. That wasn't I mean, Spock was supposed to die, but, you know, they, that was all holy hell was going to get raised, you know, if that happened. So they needed to make that change like Harv Bennett made that change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's a good it's a good uh, show topic idea. You know, you could come up with five or six different what ifs. Uh, from from different movies, different episodes, and uh, that that would make it it would be a fun conversation to have. Yep. So speaking of Harv Bennett, and I want to get into this, Ken, because you wrote a really nice note here, and I want to start off with you. And this is kind of like trending towards more of our final thoughts. So you said that Harv Bennett was a magnificent, was magnificent, and does not receive the credit he deserved for his script and creations that wound up being mainstays in the Star Trek universe. Mr. Bennett passed away two days before Leonard Nimoy. And though recognized, I believe, you believe, Chief, his contributions to Star Trek are akin to Nicholas Meyer. He was a huge part of movies two through five and had a great idea to launch a new cast for six. So I'd like to to, to kind of like explain um, your thoughts behind this behind this note that you left us. Well, when we had our discussion of TMP and and the Wrath of Khan, you know, the the movie, the the motion picture, it did financially well, but it wasn't. Uh, received well critically and if they were going to do it again they were going to do it on a tight budget and they were going to they were they needed somebody who could come in and really be conservative uh, with spend uh, tight with script understand how things could work and here's a guy Harv Bennett who wasn't a big Star Trek fan he wasn't he was not a he wasn't against Star Trek I guess he was he was kind of neutral he comes into the series he puts together a magnificent movie in in Star Trek II. He pulls in all the right people to make it work. And then he writes 100% come, comes up with the story and the writing for Star Trek III. And look at all the things that came out of Star Trek III. The guy knows drama, right? He went back and, and before Star Trek II, he watched every single episode. He watched the motion picture. He came up with a model and a concept that was very, very effective. And he had, and he saw too with Star Trek V, he saw the flaws. He, he warned them that this is not the right way to go. This is not the, the direction to go. And, and Shatner really begged him to stay on and he did. And, um, you know, and it didn't it didn't work out well. And he really wanted to redeem himself with with the new thought process for six. But just think of of the characters we have because of him, the uniforms we have because of him, the ships we have because of him, the series and the shows that we have because of Harv Bennett. 
it was more Harv Bennett than it was Nicholas Meyer. That's the truth. He was the captain of the ship. He pulled in the right people and the right talent to launch it. And I know the director gets most of the credit, but man, they were looking to make a movie of the week and he made it so good with the right people. It wound up being a motion picture and then Star Trek has taken off. So, you know, I, I think that from what I've read about Harv, he was a very um, uh, a business Hollywood mainstay. He had done a lot of television work, but I also heard he was he was a very gentle soul, a very good guy, and he just did it right. And and it's it was me thinking about this movie and how dark I guess it was and how drama filled it was. But he knew what threads to pull and what to do with it. And as you see, as the movies got made too, um, you know, the directors and people kind of pushed him off to the side, you know, um, him and Nimoy kind of went at it. Shatner brought him in because he was desperate for somebody to, to give him the right direction on, on how to do things and put things together. And, you know, by Star Trek six, he came up with a fantastic idea and that was pushed aside and it was essentially came out again in 2009. So Harv Bennett, you know, his timing, you know, he went um, two days before Leonard Nimoy died, and it wasn't known for days uh, that he had passed, at least in the media. And it's kind of sad because he should be up there, you know, ahead of ahead of Nick Meyer, in my opinion, ahead of Rick Berman, in my opinion, for, for what he did for the franchise. And a great part of my enjoyment and love of Star Trek comes from Harv Bennett. That's well said. I mean, well said, great notes. And I think that I think a lot of people that actually know a lot about Harv Bennett will agree with you. I don't know really all that much about Harv Bennett. I know that I know his contributions to Star Trek are are numerous, as as you've already pointed out. And I like seeing him as an admiral. I think it was in Star Trek five. Yep, he was Bob. Yep. So uh, that was nice. According to the encyclopedia, uh, he's Bob Bennett. <laughs> is that right, Bob Bennett? So you're, he is. I mean, his fingerprint is definitely on Star Trek, and it's and he left definitely an indelible mark on, you know, on like you said, a lot of things moving forward um, because of all of the different inspirations that he has throughout the course of all these movies. That they affect the way that they move on into like the next generation and all the subsequent series. Because, like I said, when you see an Oberth class ship, when you see an Excelsior class ship, uh, when you see certain through lines in the design and production that actually. Um, survive, you know, later on into the future series. That's again, that's a lot of his influence. So you're right. Um, hats off to uh, Mr. Harv Bennett. Uh, and I think it's, you know, sometimes happens with uh, a lot of, you know, bigger celebrities uh, passings that uh, they are the ones that are always, you know, thrust into the limelight. But I think for a lot of the Star Trek fans who knew who he was, um, they understood who he was and they were able to mourn him and uh, in the way that he needed to be mourned, you know, by, by fans who understood his work. And I think that was probably the most important thing. So, um, and before we get too dark and too dramatic in our own show, um, in terms of the final thoughts of Star Trek six, uh, wow. Whoa. What, what movie are we on? Star Trek three. Um, let's go around the horn here and, um, let's start with Mr. Ataz. And are there any other thoughts that you wanted to share with us before we start putting you in the hotspot? Like I was saying earlier, um, I, I didn't really connect with this movie as a kid, but as I got older, I really did start connecting. I did start to connect with it a bit more, and as time has gone on, I've really grown to appreciate it. And it does, like 
Ken has said, it does so much for uh, for Star Trek as a whole. I mean, there are so many things that we have that we take for granted that come directly out of this film, and that's just incredible. And Ken? Well, I enjoyed it very much. Like I said, the, the effects hold up. The acting, you know, as time goes on, I guess you can see when... Uh, you could tell that it was a first-time director for for Leonard Nimoy. I still still think he did an awesome job, but there's there's bits and bobs in that movie. You just kind of okay, that could have been pulled off a little bit better. But the drama was 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 great. It was a nice bridge movie. It it wasn't a you know Empire Strikes Back level type thing. You know where it's the the, the second act, but it was still very powerful. And uh, I agree with Atos. It it gave us a lot. It, it it seeded a lot of things for the rest of the uh, the different series that came after it, and for that it deserves a, a whole lot of credit. Yeah, I agree, and I think the one thing that was really different for me, at least, um, in, in trying in in my subsequent viewings, I'm still trying to find that point where the Klingons became Klingons, and what I mean by that, these Klingons, Christopher Lloyd's Krug and Maltz, um, they weren't the honor above all Klingons, because what they did with David, he, they stabbed him in the, you know, with, um, as a prisoner that was on his knees. That wasn't really, that's not honorable fighting to me. So when did that happen? This, they established kind of like the barbarian foreheady Klingons, but these weren't the same Klingons that I, that I fell in love with, with the original series. This wasn't Kor and this wasn't Kang. This is a completely new kind of Klingon. So did this start the Klingons down the path of, of what? What kind of characters were these Klingons? Were they rogue? Um, they didn't set the tone for the Klingon Empire as we knew it in the in the next generation and moving forward, where you know it's uh, it's honor above all. Because I don't think that what they did uh, on the Genesis planet was honorable at all. So that's the kind of thing that I just I'm, I'm a little unsettled with in terms of why did they bring the Klingons here if only just to create just this um, facsimile of a new enemy. And if so, I personally would have liked to have seen the Romulans because the Romulans in the, in the movie series, they just don't get a fair shake or seen hardly ever, except for what the one ambassador and um, half of Savic. So. And that scene got cut. <laughs> right. In six. I'm just saying it from a standpoint of, I don't think that it set up the kind of code of honor that you saw in the next generation, those kind of Klingons. Right. You know, and because they had the same look, they have the same armor, they have the same ships, they have almost the same everything. But I don't know, maybe Worf is a skewed Klingon from from my standpoint. And, you know, he has honor in one sense and then Gowron and Martok have honor in another sense. I just I never felt that past the original series, the Klingons never really had a consistency. And I know I'm going to get flamed to death after saying that, but I really don't care You're right. because I, I, I never really got that about the Klingons, like honor this and destroy them without, without even giving them a chance to fight back kind of thing. So I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't sit well no, with me. I don't want to belabor no, the but point. You're right. but, you know, you're right. just, and I think that's fair too. Maybe I, maybe I took it a step too far. I just, I'm just saying that that's how I looked at it is yeah. they, 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 they fight in the way they, they define honor. But it did evolve, and of course, it had seven years to evolve on the next generation. They went from just being the the mustache twirling villains to to having a whole society that they were really able to flush out far, far better than they were in the movies. I mean, Star Trek Five, yeah. they were even worse. Star Trek Six, you start to see that evolution, <laughs> right? You know, right. That, and also in from an in universe perspective, I mean, you're talking about about a hundred years in between what we're seeing in the original series era at this point to what we're seeing in the next generation era. 
And that's a lot of time for their culture to, to change. Yeah. And they also, you know, Enterprise went into that too. Um, some of the differences with the, the, the Klingons on that show. Yeah, I just, I don't, um, I guess my point is with all of that is I would have liked to have seen a little bit more, I don't know, background history, concrete evidence in some way of why these Klingons are here. What's the purpose aside from just being an, a villain? You know, because it's the thing. I don't like villains just for villain's sake. Let's just throw somebody, so let's just throw a, a character on the screen just so you can hate on them. You know, I, that, I don't find those villains, the, um, I don't find them compelling. You know, I mean, like, I even thought Nero was a little bit more compelling. At least he had a purpose. Well, do you think it's akin to the Federation going after the Romulans and getting the cloaking device because they saw it as a threat? And that's what the Klingons were doing? I mean, that that's kind of sure, how well, I, you know... They they definitely had a purpose. They thought that they were being threatened, and that was a very powerful weapon in their eyes, and the most destructive weapon ever made. That's what they called it. So they 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 reacted, you know. No, that's a that's a that's a fair point. Maybe it's just um I think maybe it was just handled a little bit thinly mm-hmm. for me. Oh, I, I agree. But you know what are you gonna? And again, subsequently, until we get to six, we have Claw. <laughs> You know, the, the the quintessential Klingon barbarian moron, you know, in five. And then you get really great Klingons in six. I mean, you get, you know, you got Chancellor, you have Chang, you have Chancellor Gorkhan, you have Azadur. Right. You have that really great. So I wanted to see a little bit more of a building block from, I guess, this Klingon and this team and understand, like, yes, in six, you know, you see that even, you know, Chancellor or um, uh, Worf's, not that Worf, was it Worf's, Worf's grandfather? That's right. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the Klingons had four yeah. years to be flushed out at TNG before Undiscovered Country came out. So the, it evolved a lot for that movie. I, I, I wonder if, uh, if if TNG hadn't been on the air, if they would have flushed them out that way. Of course, the whole concept of peace with the Klingons came up from TNG. So, you know, as much as I um, I have fun with my TNG friends, and I do love that series, uh, it, it did a lot for helping the original cast end with class. Yeah, no, you're right. All all good points. All good points. I and guess it, for me, it, you could also you know um, kind of work in some uh, um, some bits with Claw because the actor who played him played a translator for Star Trek Six at the uh, the courtroom scene. So you know, mm-hmm. apparently Claw got demoted after that fiasco in Five. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, does Claw mean clown in Klingon? Because <laughs> maybe it does after uh, that. Yeah, he should have been. It was awful. <laughs> Claw means lift a little oh, few I, I weights. I can't wait until we do better. Star Trek Five, guys. Oh, it's going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I'm sorry to belabor this point, but it's just again with with Star Trek Three and as much as I like it, I just would have liked to have seen the Klingons like fleshed out a little bit sure. more. But so let's let's pivot this whole thing on you know let's let's put let's take the Klingons off the off the hot seat. Let's put Mister Ataz on the hot seat because we have. We have some stuff. Yeah, Chief? We do. Uh, Mr. Ataz, I'll, I'll give you three seconds if you want to pull Megan next to you um, to, to see you win again. But um, yes, we, we do have a stump, Mr. Ataz. Are, are you ready, Jeff? I should ask you first. I think so, yeah. Okay. So this came in from, from Roy Frank Toddy. It's a, it's a great question. And he writes, in what episode does Scotty refer to engines as his batons? How do you spell that? B-A-I-R-N-S. 
I think that means babies, right? My poor yeah. barons. Oh, it's that's yeah. It's barons. Yeah, yeah it's barons. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, I want to say thinking. paradise syndrome. Jeff, you're correct. Well done. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. I mean, I should be like I should be like jumping at joy, but I'm just I'm like sitting here watching Jeff's face because this is this is radio, not TV folks. But he's his veins are, you know, throbbing his his head's turning red. And all of a sudden he's like blah, paradise yeah. syndrome. And I'm, and I'm typing like, in you know, red and, bubbles addresses. I'm watching him just <laughs> Torture like, himself wow. trying to figure it out, and the smoke coming out from his headphones. I was like, "Oh, he'll never get this," and he did it again. Nice aye, job, aye. Jeff. Nice job. And, well and done, thank you, Roy, well for done. for the question. That was a great question. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like doing like a, a run through of like playing the episodes in my head. I'm like, I saw that you're like you were doing like hyperspeed fast forward just to try and get to that line of dialogue. I'm gonna filter out everything, Scotty. It's like it's like TOS check dialogue check. Wipe out, like, like check off all the rest of the crew. Scotty, filter. Scotty, line. Scotty, dialogue. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> is all going in the tenths of seconds. Oh, that was awesome. Did you want to do the other one? Because that was that was pretty good. I don't think we, I think we should try and, and hit him up. Yeah, with an, give me a, a second. I, I pulled one, but I can pull another because we had two. We had a couple. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Let's see what we have. Wow. Folks, you should be seeing what we're seeing. I'm not sure if Jeff is now kind of like flush from the struggle of trying to bring that up or just kind of like flush from the win. Little, you know, it's like you're in Vegas. Sweat on the brow there. Yeah. Were you struggling with that? Were you? A were little you like, bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we got to make these things hard. I mean, you know, a, a redbubble.com shirt should not come easy. Okay. No. So this next question, Jeff, is from William Murray. And this goes to the TNG side of the house. In the Next Generation episode, Future Imperfect. What is the name of the planet where Riker is told he contracted Altarian encephalitis? I'm literally watching his brain, like, go through files and filters right <laughs> yeah, now. It's crazy. I'm, like, playing back the episode. Okay, um, Take as much time as you need. It's yeah, easy to compress these things. <laughs> um, it's Alpha Anias 3? Are you shitting me? I just swore in the air. Yeah, that's right. And keep it. Keep it. Oh, my God. So that was... I don't know what three four minutes we've been waiting here. It'll it'll be edited for this, folks. But oh my god, I, I'm I was literally no, writing no, Will I, I Murray. Haven't. Right, I was writing to him. Here's here's my phone. There's Will Murray, uh, writing him a note saying, "Okay, you, you can go onto Redbubble and pick out your shirt." And and how the hell did you come up with that? <laughs> I I have that timestamp. That was no more than two minutes of of. Uh, That's all it was of. Of Jeff deliberating in his brain, it it, it seems like a lot more. Boy, it but it does seem no. like a lot more. My good, great job, Mister Taz. Wow, hold on a second. I don't want to blow my mic out. I'm going to step back for a second. That was that was probably more impressive than I think any of the other ones because you were really fighting for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. grumpy yeah. salute you. Well done, sir. Unbelievable, well done. unbelievable. You have just a, uh, you have um, 
earn some shore leave for yourself and you will be uh, escorted by Schmadlap and Umpty Scratch. So good luck with that. <laughs> yes, security detail post. That's right, because we're going to tell them to, you know, <laughs> keep keep you away from the trivia for a while. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. Well done. Well done. Talking about Star Trek, the search for Spock, Star Trek 3 isn't the only thing that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here is a little bit of what we've been talking about elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, commentary, Trek stars. Every single one of these movies has been good. So the idea that the first time that he's going to make a bad movie, like the one where he's going to drop the ball, is a Star Trek movie written by Simon Pegg, that does not compute. Meta Treks. Wait, your your idea of Ryzen Ryza is like Fairhaven. Yeah, I, I like the I like the quiet, peaceful. I mean, every time I watch one of those, I don't want to see those Fairhaven uh, characters in bikinis. I'm sorry. Women at warp. So, I mean, if it weren't for the little Kira O'Brien interludes, it actually is kind of a dark episode because the very last oh, line it's, it's, is Bash- it's incredibly dark. Yeah, yeah. Bashir asks Cisco how could they have let things get so bad? And Cisco is like, I don't know. And that's the ending. And it's it's basically a challenge to us. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So I'm going to ask you, I always ask you this at every show, but I want to make sure that your faculties are in full command, Mr. Ataz, after that bout of trivia that you have just completely crushed. Absolutely crushed. But how can you let all of our listeners know um, where they can find us on the interwebs and all the different ways they can find Trek FM. Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link there as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us to increase our visibility for new listeners. Awesome, Mr. Atos. Thank you. And... As the Chief said earlier, if you won, i.e. if Mr. Atos lost those trivia questions, then we would be able to get you a t-shirt from redbubble.com. The reason why I bring that up is because at redbubble.com, if you type Trek FM in the search field, you'll be able to find a lot of great apparel that has the Trek FM logo emblazoned all over it. It's a great way for you to show off your loyalty to the network. And especially during convention season, it's just a way for you to maybe even identify yourself with other friends as you're passing yourselves through the hallways or sitting in convention centers or waiting in lines for autograph. Just type in redbubble.com, type in Trek FM in your search field and find some really good apparel with our logo and different types of pieces of original artwork that Aaron Harvey, our art director, has designed specifically for that line of clothing. So again, redbubble.com. Now, another way that you can show your support for the network is to engage us in a program that we have here called patreon.com. So if you go to patreon.com slash trek.fm, you'll find different ways of supporting us. And Chief, how can our listeners engage us uh, in those different platforms in order to support us and listen to all of this great programming that we have? So we do encourage you to become a patron, as we call it. Patreon is the service trek.fm employs to receive donations for our listener-supported network. Norm, Jeff, and I are all large donators to the network, so we do practice what we preach. And we appreciate whatever you can afford to help us. Uh, and we, we want to continue to bring you interruption-free podcasting. So if you if you were to log in to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash track dot F-M, you'll see the perks that you can receive for the level of donations that you can afford. And they include exclusive contact 
They have the AP producer credit for anybody that donates $25 a month or more. And for $15 a month or more, you get a seat on the patron roundtable where you can talk about Star Trek on your own podcast. So that's that's how all of us started on this network is, is through that, that roundtable. So it was wonderful. So all of us at Trek FM and Standard Orbit in particular appreciate all the support that you can provide. Thank you for your contributions. And for Standard Orbit, we have two fantastic associate producers. We have Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge. Thank you so much for your support. You've been supporting Standard Orbit for a long time, and thank you for doing so. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701 and Richard at RUT8972. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, if you'd like to let us know how we're doing on the show on Standard Orbit or any of the shows that Trek FM has to offer you, you can find us in a variety of different ways. You can go to trekfm slash contact, look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message there, either regarding what we said here on Standard Orbit, because I know that We've talked about a couple of controversial topics tonight. Maybe you agree with us. Maybe you don't. So we would love to hear from you. And if you do it in voice message form, we would really, really enjoy that because it's a lot of fun interacting with voice messages. We could even play it on the uh, air if we uh, so deem worthy. And you can also contact us through Trek FM uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Trek FM. And have we actually said the Babel conference on this show yet? Because we usually reference the Babel conference before this. I don't think we've brought this up yet. Okay, so the Babel Conference is our listener-exclusive page on Facebook. Now, if you type B-A-B-E-L into your search field on Facebook, it will bring you to our page. And what this page is, is basically a listener's page where you can either comment on some of the things that we've talked about here on the network or bring up some topics of your own, talk about Trek, talk about a lot of the things that are happening right now in terms of uh, the Star Trek Beyond uh, preview that just got released in terms of Uh, Star Trek Las Vegas that's happening in terms of the convention season, whatever strikes you, as long as we're talking about something that's really promoting Star Trek. So please join us there on the Babel conference. That's B-A-B-E-L and type that into your search field on Facebook and it'll pop up into your search. Now, there are various ways that you can get in touch with us here on the network. If you'd like to discuss either the topics that we've talked about tonight or on previous episodes or something that you'd like to hear about on future episodes. So, Ken, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to send you these amazing questions that they've been sending you about Stump Mr. Atos? Yeah, please look me up through the Babel Conference. I'm on there quite often, especially after we, we post a show to, to see the initial reactions and to engage in any in any questions, concerns, debates, all in good fun type things, uh, that, that's where to find me. And if you have a question that you'd like to stump Mr. Atos like Roy Frank Toddy and William Murray did tonight, then just IM me uh, directly uh, with that question. Obviously, we do not want Mr. Atos to see in advance so that we can keep it confidential until, the, until we air the show. And uh, again, if you are able to stump Mr. Atos, then I will buy for you the Trek FM red bubble shirt of your choice. So I look forward to engaging and speaking with all of you on the Babel conference. Thank you. And how about you, Mr. Atos? How can they can get in touch with you? Well, if you don't have access to an Atavicron or even a cold start uh, for your warp engines, you can always find me on the Babel conference on Facebook. I'm the co-host on the network for both Standard Orbit and for Warp 5, Trex FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm also on Twitter, at Harlander, and I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon. 
You can also check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek at trekopedia.com and my independent comic books at bandwidthcomics.com or search on Facebook for Bandwidth Comics. Thank you, Chief, and thank you, Mr. Atos. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference. I post there pretty much daily. You can also find me on Twitter at Starfighter1701. And yes, Chief, as you mentioned before, I'm also a supporter of the network through Patreon because as somebody who enjoys talking about Star Trek and somebody who likes supporting uh, these types of programs, very much like what we do with independent programming or public broadcasting, if you enjoy what you hear, Please make any type of effort that you can to be able to support that because that's how we are able to bring all of this content to you. And I think there's no better example of that than to just doing it by myself, by example, because I love what we do here on the network so much. So thank you, everyone. And Mr. Atos, why don't you close us out? Thanks, everyone, for listening. And join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. Thank you. Thank you.